care for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us I am Kate Willett And I'm Julia Clare Kate, another beautiful week in Quar on the books. Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's a segment which we've sort of dropped off on in the quarantine uh, because, you know, there's been a lot going on. It's, you know, there's lots of news. Uh, the world ended, uh, you know, all that. But it's time to bring it back. And that is the reply guy of the week. And, you know, we wanted to bring this back when there was... Uh, an amazing and glaring example of such an individual. Um, and, you know, there really, there really is. Uh, and that is a friend of the show, Elon Musk. <laughs> oh, Elon Musk has been uh, on one, as the kids say lately on Twitter. Um, he's really been he's been posting a lot of these very like terse screeds against quote unquote the left. Um, he also, it's just really funny to see what he thinks like an own is like, he has the worst comebacks. He has the just most pathetic responses to things. You know, we, we saw this with, with our friend Ken, as we described last week. Um, but yeah, he, he was like, this is my, <laughs> my summary of Das Kapital. And it's like, it just, it's a picture of Karl Marx and it says, gimme dat faux free. And he thinks that this is so smart and so edgy of him. Um, and he also is constantly talking about how like, bailouts are bad for individuals not for corporations of course because he's more than happy to take those yeah i think he i think tesla has gotten like 4.6 million or no billion 4.6 billion billion in government funds yeah for like research and development or whatever and then obviously elon musk pays you know very uh very few taxes Mm -hmm. and yeah him uh man he's just the thing is, is like, you know, we expect those people to be a really, really horrible person uh, in the the billionaire way of like, yes, I'm I'm keeping hundred uh, percent of my money that I have uh, extracted from the labor of the plebes, and um, yeah, but I mean, he's also horrible in this whole other way. He was tweeting about uh, how he hates pronouns and Grimes, the. The parents of his child is non-binary and I think uses they them. I love Grimes and I just want to I I just want the best and I can't I I it's also a bummer that they took I think we we might have said this that they took um like socialist out of their Twitter bio once they started dating Elon Musk. Um which is a bummer, but yeah. And also for someone who hates pronouns, he, I mean, their child has, if that is really their child's name, whatever the fucking, all those 
letter and number sequences that yeah, child's it, name it's is something like, like x ash a 12 i don't know i'm not i don't <sighs> want to learn the whole thing but i don't know i don't know html so i don't know <laughs> no, <laughs> what if it is like named after uh it's named after like a cia plane at least in part um oh but, good yeah but uh i mean that child will be only referred to by pronouns for the rest of their life you know mm-hmm. uh no one's gonna learn that name um i think the nickname for the kid is x or something but yeah i don't know because the thing is is like it's easy to to feel bad for grimes but then you know grimes did marry elon musk you know that's no i don't think they're married oh okay not married the, partner but, i mean she did with choose, elon musk. she did choose to procreate with with him which yeah. is tough yeah um yeah and i mean also grimes when I, she replied to him to that tweet yeah like which was kind of awesome like elon you know i i love you but i can't tolerate this hate and stuff and it's like man i don't know that's what, like that's what these things was like you know rich people who are partnered up with like other terrible rich people i you know it's it's easy to feel really bad for them, but you know, it's like at the same time, like I would imagine that you have to be a little tiny bit horrible to be with someone like that. I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, the, obviously the most egregious example is Melania. Remember the save Melania campaign? You know, people were like, yeah. Oh. yeah. And I'm like, no, she's like also bad. Like that's why she's well, I, so I remember the, obviously I'm a devotee of 60 minutes and I remember very clearly, um, the interview with Trump and Melania, uh, on 60 minutes right after he won the election. And it was the most I'd ever heard Melania speak in an interview. And she is very smart. She speaks like five languages. She, she's not some like helpless little flower. She knows what she's doing. I've been uh, following the the school reopening pretty closely. I, ha- I have a lot of friends who work in education in some capacity. Uh, and, uh, you know, while Trump pushes school reopening, Barron's school is, is not uh, reopening. So, you know, it's... Uh, that That is something that's been really bothering me. Like, the sort of push to, like, get everyone back into the classroom you know seven days a week or no five days a week everybody and it's like i have and i am i have a lot of empathy for parents who need a place for their kids to go i mean not even just not even just to work i mean like the psychological impact of never being able to be by yourself whatsoever around other Mm -hmm. adults is pretty crushing and it's like disproportionately falling on women in this way that is like just kind of yeah it's like removing women from the workforce you know and sort of uh just recreating i mean i you know it's i i don't i'm I'm trying to be careful to not like sound like i think it's you know bad if one person or another stays home but what sucks about this is that it has uh played out in a very gendered way you know it's like men get paid more a lot of the time. And so the first person's job to go uh, in a heterosexual couple is the woman's. And 
I don't know. It just it just sucks. So I, you know, it well, is. Well, I mean, it's it, like all of those same dynamics still exist now in the and have been only magnified by it's, the pandemic. Yeah. Like, um, you know, still to this day, it's like when women have children, their salary decreases, and when men have children, their salary increases, and it's like, I, I mean, it's it's just it's really frustrating to. And, you know, we I think we we might have talked about this, but like at the very pa- beginning of the pandemic, there was like that woman who like stepped down from her own business because her husband couldn't handle caring for their child for like three days. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope that they're divorced now. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, I 100 percent agree. And I mean, there's definitely, you know, obviously um, there's. You know the the right wing, and then even kind of a, a little segment of people who claim to be left. In my opinion, and I think yours too, are very reactionary. Where like somehow see it as like you know just uh, just more exploitation uh, that you know women want to work, and it's like you know feminist brainwashing or whatever. I mean, my view of it is like people should do people should be able to do whatever they want. And like, yeah, it sucks that like we live in a country where you really need two incomes to survive as a family. And then not even then, you know, Elizabeth Warren wrote a book about that a long time ago. Um, So I don't know, but I mean, I just, I think, yeah, if you have a kid, you want to stay home, if that's your choice, that's totally fine. Even if you don't have a kid, uh, if you're in a heterosexual relationship and the dude stays home, that's great. Uh, I am a comedian. I know lots of men who would love to stay home. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I have uh, dated them pretty much exclusively. <laughs> so I don't know. But I mean, at the same time, um, this school reopening uh, is the conversation around it is really fucked up because, um, first of all, like they've pulled and most parents, like no matter what their concerns are with job stuff or whatever are not in support of schools going back five days a week like nothing happened like it's a really low percentage that even want that even like a lot of republicans don't want that and yeah, it, i think it, it's like i think it's like a full 80 percent of americans don't want schools to reopen yeah and the media the new york times the washington post you know I'm, i haven't watched cable news but i would imagine it's the same it's just representing this as like oh wow you know it's this it's this hot debate both sides and it's like the majority of people are not into endangering their children's lives, you know, and I don't want to make it sound like someone is, is, is wanting to endanger their, their children's life. If they, you know, want the schools to reopen and stuff. Cause like, I I get that it's really, really hard, but at the same time, it's like, it's a complete fantasy that kids would wear a mask all day. Uh, You know, I mean, first of all, anything that would remove, access to their boogers it's not gonna go well <laughs> you know i mean it's like these children are they're gross like they're, they're like they don't you know that you think they're gonna wash their hands all the time it's like they they constantly smell like pee and maple syrup and yogurt for some reason uh these are this is not a hand washing bunch you know and i don't know i think this that is this gonna, is really gonna this is really gonna show my show my my adolescent roots but um my one of my favorite jokes on Gilmore Girls was like Luke f- f- freaking out about having to take in his 15-year-old son and acting like he was 
like five, he was just like, kids, they always have jam hands. You know, they always have jam on their hands, even though there's no jam around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, and then, and then, you know, what happens if one person gets COVID, you know, the teacher gets COVID or a kid gets COVID or something, then, you know, what? Do they close down the whole school? Do they send everyone in that class home? It just seems like this, this opening of schools, like, you know, even if you open them for a couple weeks, like it's, you know, they're going to have to be back in, in quarantine immediately. Oh, yeah. So. I mean, so I, I mean, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of issues here, one of which is just the fact that like individuals have been burdened with everything uh, here in America in the absence of any government uh, leadership and uh, protecting us at all. But uh, the point has been made that like Major League Baseball tried to come back with no audience, no one in the no one in the stands, no fans at all. And there's nine guys on a field. Or I guess, yeah, there's, like, maximum 13 guys on a field, like, ever. And uh, a baseball field is enormous. And they still have had a coronavirus outbreak. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how do you think that that's not going to happen to kids? Yeah, I mean, to your point, you know, about the kind of over... Uh, like, like, putting the responsibility on individuals too much, you know, I... I talked to my dad yesterday briefly and um yeah, my dad is, you know, he's he's well intentioned and he's, you know, I mean my mom is immune suppressed, so and my dad's older, re- they're really scared of the virus, but you know, his his response to all this is like, yeah, you know, we're in this situation because not everyone would will wear a mask. And it's like wear a mask. That's really important, but to say that that's why we're in this situation, I mean the masks like wear them yes it'll it'll definitely prevent or uh lessen um you know the, the severity of the of the virus when when people get it it'll you know prevent many cases but no country has beaten this without a shutdown you know like i've been reading some epidemiologists talk about how you know if we just did kind of a full shutdown for like six to eight weeks we could just kind of be largely done with this and move on with our lives and i mean that seems like the clear answer but you know it's well also the i mean there well there have also been studies that if there were like even 80 percent mask compliance that it would drop like really significantly and i'm not talking about on like an individual responsibility i'm talking about like if you know if government like state and local governments put stronger mandates in place and also didn't weren't constantly trying to reopen places. Yeah, like indoor, no, I, I agree. Um, yeah. And, and like, you know, that you've seen like some of the Republican governors, like the governor of Georgia banned any municipalities from requiring masks anywhere. Yeah. I've I've seen and first of all, I just want to clarify that I'm not I'm I'm fully in support of everyone working I'm fully in support of everyone wearing a mask. I'm just, you know, I I just, I just think that it's, you know, it's unfortunate that even someone like my dad, who like hates Trump, like you know, isn't putting the blame on, you know, the government because I mean, it's like I I don't know, I ah, it's just it's just really frustrating to see, like 
these people who are basically murderers at this point, you know, really before this point, just getting off the hook so, so easily, you know, with people not putting the blame where it belongs. And, you know, the fact that we are going to be in this situation for, you know, a, another year or maybe two years till, you know, if, if, you know, it, that's, that's saying that like, if there's a broadly available free effective vaccine, you know, I mean, it's like, there's no other way out of it without a shutdown. So I mean, fingers, fingers crossed. Um, this week, um, there was, uh, well, I guess, I guess it was, it was last week, but we didn't record after this. Um, so, uh, AOC was called a fucking bitch by one of her colleagues, uh, Yoho. Rep- representative, re- representative Ted Yoho. Yoho, um, Yoho. <laughs> I think he's from Florida. He must be everything cursed is, but. A pirate's um, life for him. Yeah. Yeah. He um, sucks. I mean, and you know, <laughs> like, so she addressed this on the house floor. I thought her speech about it was really good. I, and I, she, and she addressed it after he had, um, he had, he was also forced to address it first. And he, it was a complete, like, it was a classic non-apology. It was just like, I don't know. He, he was like, I cannot apo- apologize for loving my God. <laughs> like all yeah. that stuff. And he also, of I course, can't be pulled sexist. Out, I have a daughter, basically one yeah, of those. No, he of course pulled out the like, um, I have a wife, I have a daughter. Like, okay, thank you so much. I know so, a woman. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stop trying to flex. We all know a woman. Um, but AOC responded to it. And then also, um, Ilhan Omar followed up after after her speech as well in defense of of AOC. But yeah, she was called a fucking bitch by a colleague on the steps of the Capitol building in front of a reporter. Um, and this is actually like a prime example of the one of the reasons why. Um, I definitely wanted to start this this podcast, and I think Kate Kate and I had talked about this too. Like, I, I would think Kate you would agree with this is that like there is a problem when I, a lot of the voices on the left, like of leftism, the loudest voices are like disproportionately cis men. Um, and you know, I saw some really fucking dog shit galaxy brain takes about how, because AOC addressed this, on the house floor that she is a quote-unquote toxic narcissist oh yeah well that was like a i mean that was the most galaxy brain of of all of them but but then but then there were some other people who were like yeah i mean i've said she sucked for so long and you know there's really no difference between her and joe crowley oh yeah i mean and you know fucked like yeah (laughs) And then the, the milder version is, like, why is she talking about this? Like, when, you know, there's so many other things going on. It's like, you know what? She's allowed to take nine minutes. I mean, it's not like she's not doing anything else. What are you doing? I mean, I'm not saying, look, there's legit critiques of AOC. You can make, there are legit critiques of every politician. Like, stand culture is is fucked up, right? Like, you know, I mean, there. There, there are things to say. Uh, there's, there are things that I, you know, wish that uh, AOC would would do a little bit differently, you know. But at the end of the day, like the idea that 
someone has to tolerate uh, a a sexist and racist attack, you know, uh, as part of their job is so fucked up. And um, yeah, it was, I, you know, I, it was kind of, um, it was really disheartening yet also expected to, you know, just see people on the left, like kind of reflexively condemn her for addressing this because it had anything to do with identity issues um i you know i was thinking yeah, about I this mean, that's that that's the crux of it and it's like you know aoc talks about poverty and the working poor and like stuff again she is you know we all hate the phrase the overton window but she has shifted it like and she's constantly talking about like people's material needs and the idea that she is selfish or narcissistic or obsessed with identitarian politics because she had to respond to something that was directly said to her is bonkers. And, and, you know, there were people who were like, well, Bernie never talks about himself. And I'm like, well, Bernie is like, Oh, I'm sorry. Like, yes, he is. He is Jewish. Absolutely. But he's a white man. And I guarantee you that no one ever called him a fucking dick on the steps of the Capitol in front of reporters. Yeah, I mean, no no colleague of his. No. And, you know, I think that like part of the reason that people were like some leftists were getting so mad about it is because, you know, there were a lot of uh, liberals that sort of rallied behind AOC on on this. And, you know, I mean, like there were, you know, liberal feminists, you know, tweeting about AOC's speech. And it's like the because some liberals like her doesn't mean that she's bad like i think it's a it's a net positive if i i totally i totally agree i've i've said this from the beginning because there are people who i know who are like have moved significantly to the left because now like the face of of leftism in the dem, in the demo, in, in the democratic party in elected office are like really three women of three women of color and I yeah. think that the three of them have been able to, and, you know, definitely to some extent, Iona Presley as well, uh, have been able to reach people that, like, wouldn't have been able to hear their ideas as clearly, I think, if it were said by a white man. Yeah, I mean, it's like, obviously, you know, the, I think, like, that kind of culture of sort of like a reactionary dismissal of anything any identity related issues at all i mean you can see i know i'm not like defending it but you can see like how it happened because you know like whatever people refer to as identity politics and i'm not i'm not totally co-signing like i mean i identity politics it's it is you know just there, there's no uh, there's no politics that is like separate from, you know, identity issues. But all politics is identity politics. Yeah. I mean, you know, and and at the same time, like there are a lot of people who want to. Weaponize uh, identity issues as a way of, you know, not addressing people's material concerns or papering other other types of violence like. You know, Kamala Harris is probably going to be uh, the vice president. And uh, I'm supposed to have spent the past, you know, several months uh, protesting police violence and then be excited that, 
uh, a cop is going to be the vice president. I'm sorry. No, you know, and the, uh, no, I mean, like, well, I think, yeah, I think this goes these people are there. There is like a, a weaponization of uh, identity sometimes that happens. But I think, you know, most there there's a lot of people who are now, you know, over the past few years have become well versed in the distinction between like, OK, you know, what is the relationship between you know, sexism, racism, and capitalism. Like, can you uh, fight racism without uh, addressing the ravages of capitalism? Absolutely not, you know, and... No. Yeah, and, or, but then... I mean... It- yeah, but it's just like, but, I mean, people are, people are becoming well-versed in this distinction, and, like, the point of view that, like, 100% of identity issues have to be reflexively dismissed um is is not only dumb it's just becoming increasingly irrelevant because the the mainstream conversation is actually smarter than those people at this point yeah and it's and you know this goes back to something that you and i have talked about before it's like just because you know evil corporate capitalist quote-unquote feminism exists doesn't mean that we should wholly dismiss all calls for like feminism or all kind of signals of feminism. I just like the idea that in like in any social justice movement, we are like, it's like a baseline expectation to be kind of intersectional in your practice. And also, I mean, economics, like, you know, the, our study of economics is uh, intersectional a lot of times, or it should be. Yeah, the idea that, like, I, I, I feel like the biggest proponents of this idea are oftentimes women, you know? Um, it has a very... I don't agree with that. <laughs> I really don't. The loudest people are uh, about this on the right and the left of, like, anti-identitarian politics are men. I don't um, know. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll name some names off off air i don't want to name names on here but i mean if i think about kind of like on the left like the most sort of egregious proponents of weirdo fucking mra shit i can think of like like four to five of the most loud people about this are women well i think i think i know who you're i think i know who you're talking about now um but and certainly they are loud and they are annoying as hell, but they are outnumbered by men. Yeah, uh, I guess that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, anyways, but, you know, what, Kate, what are you and I really, really saying? Because we're just we're just women who at our core really just want to be housewives. I think if if we know anything, it's that it's that, you know, um, women I, working is a, a bourgeois concept and we should accept our place. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been thinking like, in a way, this is, like, all just fucking weirdo internet shit that, like, regular people probably, you know, don't really know about. But, you know, I mean, at I mean, least... and if you don't, if you don't know what we're talking about, God bless. Yeah. I, stay, stay pure. Don't look it up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, like, obviously, the, the, the biggest uh, proponents of, you know, whatever is, you know, sort of, like, trad or whatever. Like, it's, you know, it's obviously mostly on the right wing, but... So that th- those kind of ideas uh, never appealed to me. One because I grew up in 
a conservative Christian environment and you know I'm like okay that again fuck no like that you know in addition yeah. to uh in addition to it being wrong it's also like fucking boring as fuck like i've seen women make casseroles all day it does not look fun to me but two you know <laughs> uh, i am sexually attracted to men who have problems with employment so <laughs> it's never really an option <laughs> and you know what that's really a curse that afflicts so many of us myself included and I think if, if anywhere is a good place to stop, it's that. Well, um, we do want to mention that before we jump into our interview with the amazing Sia Weaver, um, yes, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about something really concerning that happened in New York yesterday. Um, in part two of uh, Man with a Van episodes, um, there was a... Uh, a protester, um, a trans woman who was uh, picked up and thrown in an unmarked van yesterday um, and has since been released. I think you told me with a death ticket. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. A death ticket, which I know about only from Jake, who uh, got the same thing, is that basically you don't have to wait and to... Uh, to go to court to have uh, the charges read to you, you okay. can be released just at the at the precinct with a ticket that they write at the desk, which is why it's at called the desk. desk ticket. Okay, yeah. Um, so you also, know, also she's um, you know, I was I was reading a little bit about her. Um, she's also yeah, she's uh, she's a young she's a young trans woman. She's also. Um, someone experiencing homelessness so truly and she's like when you watch the video of the cops shoving her into this van you see there's so many of them and this girl is like she's got to be like a hundred pounds soaking wet like there's no there's just the there's no way to not call this excessive force like it's just unconscionable and i was I didn't, I was doing some more research about the use of unmarked vans, and I, I guess, like, every fucking police department in America has unmarked, <laughs> unmarked cars that they use, um, which is, uh, I don't feel good. <laughs> One thing I was struck by, and this obviously is not the main point, but does uh, need to be said, is that this was a minivan. Like, these mm -hmm. macho-ass, toxic masculinity motherfuckers driving around trying to prove whatever their masculinity okay really it's not about masculinity totally obviously there's many institutional things don't yell at me i understand that just doing a riff but that being said <laughs> uh these toxic masculinity motherfuckers driving around in minivans uh without snacks in the back one can assume i mean have yeah. they no self-respect i <laughs> yeah not? yeah i mean you know Maybe if people got arrested in minivans, like, generally, and you got the full minivan experience. experience. Yeah, yeah, like, you got to have little fruit snacks. Um, they put on some songs <laughs> that you and your friends would enjoy, you know. And they just... That sounds... You, they drove you to a safe location, and then they, they dropped you off uh, with a little note about... Uh, how they loved you and wanted the best for you. Maybe that would be one way to 
reform the criminal justice system, but just doing Look, we're just spit we're just spitballing here yeah. um we do think that you should take that under advisement but like if you don't whatever it's fine yeah uh you know um so you know that's that uh there's there's obviously like a lot of other things um next week uh we'll talk more about um the biden uh vice presidency uh nomination and you Cause, know because he he should have just he should he will he have decided by then do you think yeah i think it's gonna be uh i think it's gonna be kamala but we'll know for sure by next week i think it's gonna be yeah, announced no, I, I mean Saturday. i i certainly i certainly think it's gonna be kamala or i don't know why it i don't know why but i think it, it's either gonna be kamala or susan rice um but yeah i'm leaning i mean it's the narrative arc of like kamala being the one who who called him out in a presidential debate and then becoming his vp is i can see them that working for them and that being something that they want to uh exploit but um just to put a button on what happened in new york um you know obviously Bill de Blasio, we knew that he was going to once again just not handle this situation the way we needed him to. Um, I mean, again, this girl was 18 years old. And when uh, he was asked for a statement this morning, uh, this is, we're recording this on Wednesday, he said, I think it was the wrong time and the wrong place to effectuate that arrest, which is mm, truly the most... <laughs> just generous way to put that um possible i know yeah. that he's very afraid of, he's very afraid of the police union already but he but he went on to say the arrest as i understand was for damaging police property i want to affirm very clearly no one is allowed to damage police property oh my that god is a real, what a fucking a real monitor. you know here's know. the thing here's the thing de blasio puts me in a real tough conundrum because you know on the one hand i want to be you know thoughtful in my language right like on this podcast we've never been on the side of being a leftist means that you have to uh do sexism and racism and say the r word we've never landed on that side it is however so hard for me to not refer to bill de blasio as a little bitch and i hate that he makes me feel that way (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) um yeah those are our politics and if you disagree with them please take it up with management yes Uh. (laughs) um anyway so uh you know we just want to take a a quick little moment here to uh thank our patrons um all of our patrons thank you so much for uh subscribing we have uh a a new patreon episode out this week you just recorded uh with melissa again yeah yeah melissa lozada oliva and she is it's it's so good melissa is uh, strangely we've had we've had a a few poets on the show and i love you know as a comedian i love getting to talk to uh poets to express my sincere side and uh yeah melissa and i had a great conversation about cancel culture everybody's favorite topic the favorite topic of all uh white men doing journalism although you know that's true there's there's women doing it too i don't want to be one of those and also not not you know don't don't erase thomas chatterton williams yes (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. Um, Want to take a minute to uh, thank, especially our, our VIP patrons. Um, we have Diana Cohen, Joshua Siegel, Michael Martin, uh, Jennifer Connerton. Jennifer Jennifer Connerton, who is a, a friend of mine. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, and uh, Rachel Hamburg. Um, and Colin... Dildine. And we have a bunch of new VIP patrons and Max Moen Johnson. Um, so thank you so much. And uh, if you are not a patron of the show yet uh, and you are in a position where you could consider becoming a patron, uh, we would love and appreciate it. And also, you know, we know it's a hard time. We try to do uh, as much uh, of the news and urgent related content on our free episodes. And we try to do uh, deeper dives um, into, um, you know, getting to know different uh, artists that we really like um, on our Patreon episodes. But, you know, there's, you know, still uh, lots and lots of really great free content. Uh, if you can sign up to be a patron, uh, we would appreciate that so much, though. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, stand-up comedy is not coming back anytime soon. <laughs> it sure is not. Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, um, Kate... I think I think we're ready for that interview. Yeah, and uh, uh, so this this is an interview um, that you just did about uh, all things related to housing policy, the legislation on the table, uh, why housing is an important issue for socialists, and I myself cannot wait to hear it. I'm so stoked. It's uh, yeah, it's with uh, with my my good friend Sia Weaver, who is the campaign coordinator for the Housing Justice for All campaign here in new york um it's it's mostly it's like mostly specific to new york legislation but honestly a lot of the trends that we talk about uh and they're not good um in housing are applicable all over the u.s and i think it's really interesting and i hope that you will too oh yeah one super last quick thing uh i just want to say uh congrats uh, to Ferris Soufrant. Uh We have not yet acknowledged her victory on the podcast. Uh, she rules. Go listen to her episode. Oh, my God. She's best. Um, all right. Congrats congrats to Farah and congrats to our former guest, Jamie Loftus, on her Emmy nomination. <laughs> oh, Jamie got nominated for an Emmy? That rules. Yeah. Awesome. All right. We will, okay. uh, we'll talk later. Thank you so much. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I'm very excited today because we have a, a special guest to to talk to us about uh, the state of the housing justice movement uh, here in New York. Um, she is the campaign coordinator for the Housing Justice for All campaign. Sia Weaver, welcome to Reply Guys. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, Sia and I have known each other for about two years now, um, and I met her, of course, through the Housing Justice for All campaign. Um, she is just the—I feel like you you are everyone's point person for everything, at least in, like, in DSA, for sure. In the DSA <laughs> housing working group, you are— 
like if anything needs to be explained and no one else can do it, it is always you. Uh, so I feel bad that that is your, you, that is your burden that everyone is always like, see, I will explain that. Um, but I guess my, my first question to you, and I was saying this to you before we started recording, but I don't know how you became involved in the housing justice movement. So can you tell us about that? Sure. So I got involved in the housing justice movement when I, well, I graduated from college at the sort of height of the foreclosure crisis in 2010 and moved to New York and started doing tenant organizing in buildings that had just been like totally abandoned by landlords that were facing multifamily foreclosures. Um, so that's how I got started and, um, knocking on tenants' doors, getting tenants together to fight to take back over their housing from landlords who had really walked away and, um, you know, that was 10 years ago. Here we are in the middle of another housing crisis. So, you know, I, I, uh, um, I have my, I have, uh, I feel like, I don't know, the housing market just bounces back and forth between like disaster and pre- like pr- totally predatory speculative behavior back and forth, back and forth. So here we are. Yeah. And you were, pr- I mean, the housing justice for all campaign is like a coalition or the housing justice for all coalition is, um, a group of different nonprofit organizations. And also, um, what is DSA classified as? I can't. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, housing justice like, for all. Yeah. It's like DSA is a, it's a political organization, I think. Yeah. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. So it's, but it's a coalition of different organizations and the coalition, uh, last year was on a universal rent control campaign that, uh, sent nine bills to the state legislature here in New York, and we won eight of those nine bills. We got eight of those nine bills passed. Um, so tell us a little bit about what we won last year here in New York. Totally. It's really amazing. So we won basically the strongest set of rent control laws in the country. Um, so thanks to our campaign last year, it's much harder for your landlord to evict you. It's much harder for your landlord to raise your rents. And if your landlord does start an eviction proceeding against you, there's all of these rules about, um, how that eviction will look like. And you have a lot of protections in, in that eviction. Um, so that means that, you know, in New York state, if you live in a building with six or more apartments built before 1974, your landlord does not get to decide how much your rent goes up. Uh, we get to decide, the city gets to decide, and so that's just a tremendous victory um, for renters. Um, in addition, it's harder for, your landlord can't raise the rents if they like want to make capital improvements to your building. It's really, we did win some very strict provisions around tenants' rights and landlords' ability to, to raise rents and displace people out of their homes. Um, obviously that ninth bill is really important. Um, the ninth bill would have extended protections to buildings that have less than six apartments in them. So we all mm-hmm. know somebody who lives in a four unit apartment building or a three unit apartment building, or maybe rents in a single family. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> maybe rents in a single family home, whatever, you know, that's millions of renters. It's about 3 million mm-hmm. renters in New York. And those folks still have so few protections compared to people who live in bigger buildings. So we still have a lot left to do. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that because I was so um, I was so grateful that my landlord didn't raise our rent this year. Um, 
And because I've still heard some like horror stories about that, again, in in the midst of a pandemic, that there are landlords who are who are exorbitantly raising rent. And a lot of times it is in situations like mine where there are these like, you know, my building is four units um, and there are, I, you know, I live in Bedside. There are a lot of four unit or three unit buildings uh, all over the neighborhood. And I'm sure there are all over New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also, um, so the ninth bill also had to do with, wait, I'm sorry. We can cut this out of it. I thought that for some reason, I thought the ninth bill was just cause eviction. Yeah, that one. That's the one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. Yeah. So, I mean, that one is still outstanding. We are still trying to get that passed. The fight is not over for that. Um, and uh, Senator, State Senator Julia Salazar has been like really instrumental in kind of, I think, you know, pulling a lot of people in the state legislature to the left. And I think, you know, we've just had, uh, most recently we've been putting a lot of our energy towards, um, other candidates like her. Um, we just, Jabari Brisport, who just won, Farah Soufran, uh, were also, they were, the two of them were also, um, pretty big with, uh, you know, active in the housing justice movement, uh, as well as Marcella, um, who also just won really, I mean, and it's, it's particularly exciting because I just, besides California, like, is there any other state government that is more controlled by real estate money than ours? Like I just, uh, so it's been, that's the, that has been the small silver lining and it has been, it's, you know, reignited the smallest flame of optimism within me. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, even one, even the election of like one, you know, leftist, socialist, progressive person uh, to one of these state legislative bodies is huge. Oh, Totally. It's so um, good. I, I mean, we it. literally had, we had, we had Farah and Marcella met each other getting arrested outside of the state assembly to call for universal rent control. Um, I don't know, less than a year ago. And now yeah. they're both going back next year in less than a year to the state assembly as legislators. Um, so it really is um, a dramatic, dramatic victory for the tenant movement to see more people like Senator Salazar in office. Um, and of course, we really believe that good cause eviction, which, you know, in many ways was the most transformative bill on our platform last year, um, mm-hmm. can happen with a legislature that looks like, you know, Farah and Marcella. So we're really excited yeah. about that. Yeah, we talked a lot internally about we debate whether or not just cause eviction just needs a new name. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> we do. That's what that's what's holding it up. But um, yeah, I uh, I I have to say that uh, going out and talking to tenants and meeting like neighbors here in Brooklyn. Uh, and talking to people about um, organizing their building has been 
like such a rewarding experience. First of all, just like meeting people who have lived here in New York for generations. And also, I mean, it's also infuriating because you see some of the, these buildings that are owned by these like corporate landlords who own a hundred buildings or something like that. And they're full of like lead and asbestos and, it's just really, and, and, and like, there are babies in these buildings, you know? It's gross. It's really um, gross. I mean, it's so gross. Yeah, another yeah. another member of the coalition, uh, one of, uh, one of our, our fellow DSA members and I went out to uh, this building in Brownsville to talk to people about organizing their building, and their, their landlord had did own like a hundred buildings and theirs had the most violations like code violations. And there was like very clearly lead paint. It had been tested. Um, and what they just kept proposing to do was like paint over it. (laughs) And it's just, it's just absolutely infuriating. And you also see what people think that they can get away with because like, it's a lot, a lot of the times it's like the most marginalized of our neighbors are the people who live in these buildings. And they think, um, these like corporate landlords think that they can just treat them however they want because they, everyone needs some place to live and they're not going to complain. Yeah. Right. I mean, that is totally true. There is just like this problem of like, I don't know. There's like a, such a disempowered, the reason why I love rent control so much is that there is like, it's about creating a better, uh, correcting the power imbalance that exists between people who quote unquote own buildings and people who live in them. And it's really about transforming housing from, uh, some like vehicle for some out of state investor or out of whatever to limitlessly profit to like something that people have the right to like live in and stability Mm -hmm. and, and to really being like a home. Um, and I think thinking about like the thinking about that's really important because so many more people are renting now. Um, I like to think, I I think it's just like, so, you know, I graduated from college in the midst of a foreclosure crisis and so many, so many people who are homeowners lost their homes. Um, those people are renting, but people like me, like, you know, by the time, I was, my parents were my age, they were homeowners. Like that's, I don't mm-hmm. see becoming a homeowner in my future. And so what's so cool about the rent control fight and housing justice for all is that it's a multi-generational, multi-racial, multi-class movement where yeah. like, um, you know, younger people who like face the, how graduated the height of the foreclosure crisis are never going to become homeowners or joining with people who have been lifelong renters who have been systematically excluded from the homeownership market because of like racism and inequality. And, and we all have like shared economic interest in like fighting our landlord. Um, somebody mm-hmm. once said to me at a DSA meeting that like everyone's a socialist when it comes to their landlord. And I think that that's really true. Yeah. So we, it really, <laughs> it really is just like one of the fundamentally exploitative relationships between landlords and renters that exists at the core of living in New York City. And like people don't agree on much here, but they agree that the rent is too fucking high and it just, you know, and it's a problem that COVID-19 is making worse. So I really mm-hmm. have hope that if we're building a socialist movement and if we're building um, a left movement in the city and in the state, organizing around housing is, is the way to do it. And I think the like 
we have proven that in housing justice for all, and we're going to keep proving that in housing justice for all. Totally. And I think, you know, I, I know a lot of people who have, you know, in the midst of all this had to move. I've actually had like roommates, like both of my roommates moved out in the, in the midst of all this. And so I know people who've been looking for new apartments and stuff like that. And a lot of them are are like, oh, it seems like prices, like rent prices are a little bit lower right now. I'm like, well, yeah, that's some, that's a number of factors, but I wouldn't, I don't know. Like, as you said, the housing market just kind of vacillates between these boom and bust extremes. And I just, I am just always afraid of what's on the other side of the door uh, (laughs) when it comes to, to housing prices. But to that point about um, the pandemic, what have you seen as like the biggest changes in the housing justice movement uh, since the pandemic has begun? It's been tremendous, honestly. Like I think that, um, well, here's just an anecdote. Before, I thought that our housing movement last year was big, and it was, where we represent mm-hmm. many organizations across the state. But in the, but we had like an action network email, Google, whatever list that had like 6,000 people on it in February. Today, our email list has over 100,000 people. We are like, got like everything we post on Instagram gets like thousands of likes, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of people are turning to housing justice for all and the housing justice movement because everyone has lost their jobs. And so when you think about like all the people who have lost jobs or income permanently, um, they're like, what's your biggest fear? They're like, it's the rent. So people are going to, people are literally, we've been saying for a long time that everyone is one life event away from an eviction. I think we probably said that like a hundred times a day last year, Mm -hmm. but like now, and everyone was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that life event isn't going to happen to me. That life event just happened to 1.4 million people at once, Mm -hmm. you know? And if your rent was already too damn high, which it was, you were already paying more than 50% of your income in rent. The idea that we're going to catch back up, even once we get rehired, is like silly and impossible. So mm-hmm. it's a moment where people are sort of radically rethinking um, about what, about how un, just how unfair rent is and just what it would really mean for housing to be a human right. So like people are coming to us and want to be absorbed, absorbed into this movement and want to participate in this movement are like, what can we do to help? Um, and hopefully we can give those folks a political home. Yeah, totally. I mean, the... I in, you know this about me. I've said this many times before, but I actually got plugged into DSA through housing because um, DSA was the only organization that I saw that had a, you know, when I was looking years ago, uh, that had like a really robust, dedicated group uh, working on, on housing and tenants' rights. And it's something that it's a problem that's like only getting worse and it's and the problems have been magnified by the the pandemic as you as you said and um i've yeah i've just like i've learned so much and the more i learn the more horrified i am <laughs> it's, so, it's so horrendous um but i guess to that end like what do you see as the kind of like what would your ideal end game be for 
housing in America. Like, you know, mm-hmm. housing, great. housing, <laughs> housing in, in a housing as a human right is like such a, it's really it's like, abstract. it's a very, yeah, it is very abstract. It's catchy, but it's like, I think if you pulled most people, they'd be like, yeah, okay, well, what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really important question because it's one of those things where like, like, I feel like I could call it the biggest landlord in the city, and I'd be like, is housing a human right? And they'd be like, yeah, housing's a human right, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, Democratic politicians who regularly legislate on the wrong side of renters say housing is a human right. And I think that there's, like, a thing that's fundamental to this country and fundamental to capitalism that really is about, like, protecting property rights over human rights and protecting, you know, the right to own land over the right to, like, live freely, Um, Mm -hmm. And so to me, my ideal housing situation means that wealth and, like, economic security is not dependent on your home. Right now, Mm -hmm. you only, you, you, if you are a homeowner, you can borrow against the value. If you are a homeowner and your home that you own happens to be in, like, a nice neighborhood, you're able Mm -hmm. to go to good schools, you're able to borrow against the value of your home to send your kids to college, you're able to borrow against the value of your home to like pay for medical emergencies and you just like are able to live a full, and and the value of your home is what determines the quality of the schools around you. This sort of like, this sort of like propped up private property um, is so fundamental to being able to live in American society and that it's just like so fucked up because it's so racist and oh you know, yeah and there are, there are so totally. many benefits there are so many benefits that homeowners are given and have yeah. been for so long and but the pool of who can own a home has become smaller and smaller and smaller so I mean it's really like obviously the class divide is widening and has been for decades, but that has really contributed to it a lot. And so much about housing policy has been racist and it's not just the like overt stuff like redlining. Um, it's also been like, um, the underwriting in housing covenants in, um, different municipalities over the decades. It's also the fact that like when, you know, as you were talking about, when the the housing crisis happened, when when the housing market collapsed, it was because a lot of uh, banks gave like predatory loans to people of color. Um, yeah, totally. And so you see, like, home ownership so, as like wealth building and mm-hmm. like related to education for white families and like a trap for black families, and it's just so fucked up. Um, I'll say it. It's bad, and I don't like it's it. It's bad. <laughs> so I think we need to take that. We need to, like, really, be, like, when I say we need to abolish private property, I, like, really do mean it, but that's not going to happen overnight tomorrow. I think tomorrow what it means is, like, passing strong rent controls that that sort of do limit people's ability to endlessly profit, that give us more power to regulate what happens on land, that give renters a right of economic security, and then more transformative reforms like that. Um, it also means investing in our public housing and ensuring that our public housing is democratically controlled, you know, things like that. Right. And I'll tell you what, when it was, you know, in at times in American history when it was uh, more just like exclusively white people who own homes, and disproportionately that is absolutely still the case, but when it was like more explicitly racist, the benefits for and the like the subsidies the government subsidies that were given to homeowners were 
even more robust. Like people were like, again, you know, that, that happened when totally. white, white GIs came home after world war two, the GI bill, um, hundreds and thousands of middle-class developments were built all over this country um, for white GIs and their families to move into, and they their loans were subsidized by the federal government. My anecdotally, and um, when my dad was like in the, in the seventies, my dad bought his like little condo in uh, in Massachusetts, and he he was he said that because of some like some subsidy program for people who bought condos at the time, he ended up paying like $7,500 for a beautiful condo in like a nice area. And like, do you think that that would have happened to him if he were black? Absolutely Absolutely fucking not. not. Um, so I mean, yeah, the whole, and, and I think a lot of people who are not socialists and just like mainstream, mainstream everyday folks when they hear like abolish private property think that that's like so extreme and i've i've seen you know different reactions to it on on social media that uh (laughs) are very funny and they're like what so i can't own a book like i can't you're gonna take away my clothes it's like no private property is private property is different than personal property it's just it's like about it's about removing the yeah, housing that, as a yeah. as a h- housing as a commodity like right. housing as something yeah, totally. that's what it's about it's not about like you can't own a vase go own, <laughs> own your like, vase you want us to share toothbrushes and i'm like no <laughs> i know that's gross not. that's gross <laughs> that's gross and that's not hygienic and you're very sick um yeah yeah no you probably because those people aren't wearing masks either Oh, oh boy. Well, uh, you know, uh, I can't, I can't, I get so mad at, I, I, and I, I do feel very grateful that I feel like with each passing week in New York anyways, like more and more people are like, I see it's just like ubiquitous, absolutely everywhere. I remember in the very beginning when it was when like people were like, you really should wear masks. There were a lot of people like publicly arguing about that and like getting, you know, yelling at store clerks and stuff like that being like, I don't, but it feels like, it feels like the tide has turned here in New York anyways, where it's like, I very rarely see anyone without a mask anymore in, especially indoors. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Okay. Back to the pandemic. Um, so what <laughs> you know that's all around us um are there any is there like any relief in sight for people here in New York um i know that there was an eviction moratorium um for that that began when the when the pandemic did uh which is great but it was my understanding that housing court is opening back up Um, and are there any, are there any proposals on the table? I know that there's this like very sort of ambiguous rent assistance program, but yeah, yeah, I don't, do you know anything about, is anyone planning anything? Is Cuomo doing anything? I don't, I doubt it, but yeah. So yeah, I don't know. So because of COVID-19, 
we think we estimate that 1.4 million people have missed at least one month's rent in the last um, in the last four months, and that means mm -hmm. that they're at immediate risk of eviction when housing courts start to reopen, which is going to happen um, on August 6th next week. Um, and so, what is that going to look like? Um, it, well, I guess you know. It could, it's going to be slow. It's going to be boring. I mean, people are going to be dragged to housing court, and we're going to have to think about how folks can, like, defend and fight for their rights. The governor has consistently um, confused the hell out of people. Um, they passed an eviction moratorium that they then rescinded. They passed yeah. something called the Safe Harbor Act, which um, is full of loophole. It just gives tenants a defense in court saying, I lost my, I lost my job. And then their landlord can still like garnish their wages, or landlord can still um, bring them to court for other non-COVID-related offenses and so or non-rent offenses. So basically, the long story, extremely short, is that like, the governor and the state legislature have made it extremely confusing. Um, they passed uh, pretty much nothing that can support renters, and we have no idea what's going to happen on August sixth. The existing rent relief program that they passed at the end of May or early June is so pathetic. Um, <laughs> it is just $100 million in a one-time support. Um, they gave you two weeks to apply. They only made the application available in English. Um, and they're, you know, with $100 million, you're going to be able to help, we think, maybe 10,000 people compared to the 1.4 million who need support. And it's just a total giveaway to the landlords. So we're just, you know, completely disappointed with what has happened from the state legislature so far and really hoping that in the next few weeks before this crisis gets worse, they, they're going to be willing to step up and do something meaningful. We hope. Yeah. Uh, we, we hope. hope and demand. Um, we both hope <laughs> and demand. People who I've, I, I've met a lot of cool people through the Housing Justice for All movement um, but one of the, one of the aspects that, that I've been exposed to on like a firsthand, uh, level is, uh, since, since getting involved with a movement that I never had before was like speaking directly to people who are experiencing homelessness and, uh, New York city has an unconscionably large homeless population. Um, how do you. I know. How do you, and I mean, especially because we have so many thousands of apartments uh, here in New York that are used as pied de terres or used as second homes by uh, foreign investors, people who spend a week <laughs> in their, uh, in this apartment. It's not their primary residence at all, yet we still can't get a pied de terre tax passed, um, even though the majority of New Yorkers support it. Um, but do you see this crisis worsening the epidemic of uh, people experiencing homelessness? And do you see that population growing? Um, yeah, I think it has to. If all the people... Yeah. So under Governor Cuomo, homelessness has gone up by 40%. Um, and under COVID, they are not... We know that housing equals health care. They're telling us to stay home, stay home, stay home. They're like, what about the people who don't have any homes? Homeless New Yorkers are living shoulder to shoulder in shelters. They um, have not been getting any support from the state to adequately socially distance. 
they're at an extremely high risk of contracting and spreading the disease, and nobody, it, and, and the reaction has been to criminalize homelessness. So that's just like an extension yeah. of this like, question. Like, we don't value human rights, we value property rights. And so, you know, if you're homeless, instead of like compassionately providing care, our reaction is to like criminalize that person. And so, you know, over 100 people in New York have died because of COVID-19 in our city shelters. They're not doing anything about it. 92,000 people are homeless. It's a higher number than ever before in our state's history. And we're about to face an eviction crisis of like never before experienced proportions. And so is that like what it, I just don't know what it's going to take to to get the legislature to take this crisis seriously and you got the governor to take this crisis seriously. Um, you know, I wish that politicians who are mad about cancel rent and the rhetoric that we're using to talk about the housing crisis, they're always just like, well, like we need to help the small landlords too. I'm like, do you have any idea like the gap in privilege between somebody who like is lucky enough to own a home in Bed-Stuy and someone who is homeless? Yeah. Like, why is our priority to support homeowners again and again and again and again? Also, and, you know, I've learned this through uh, a lot of our, our meetings and the information that's been disseminated there, that, like, the mom-and-pop landlord is largely a myth in New York. It is an anomaly more than anything. It's And it's... It's, it's such a lie. That idea is weaponized and it's used to discredit any kind of any push for tenants rights um totally and it's so creepy and unfair it really is bad and that's why when you know when Cuomo was getting all of this like praise from other parts of the country uh because just because he was like taking the pandemic quote-unquote seriously everyone was like oh my god Cuomo's amazing like talk to anyone in the New York in the, anyone York, who lives here. in the New York housing movement, talk to anyone who, like, isn't a homeowner, doesn't own property in New York. Like, nothing. It's ridiculous how much value is placed on property and how people who have been able to attain that privilege and that benefit are, like, seen as, like, whole humans in a way that people who don't can't, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I think... And New York City is disproportionately renters, but in like every other city, pretty much, and even to some extent in New York, in New York as well, it's like renters are seen as just disposable. It's like, oh, yep. it's like if you don't like it, someone else will, and tough shit. Um, yeah. And that's been like a really. I, I can only see that getting worse as inequality gets worse and as fewer and fewer people are able to own homes. Um, it's so sad. But, yeah, there's just something, like, it's it's really frustrating because the the housing bubble has burst a number of times now and there is never any... There's never any account, accountability and there's never any changes Uh that are substantively made. Um, I know. So. Um, it's, it's like, what's it going to take to get people to like value renters over and, and value humans over yeah. valuing profit. And I think the reason why it doesn't catch is that real estate is so fucking profitable for mm -hmm. those people who are able to hold it. Right. And like, it's hard for us to think that, and because our safety net is so weak, you know, people are like, well, what about my, like, retirement? And, like, 
to be honest, like that's like kind of fair. Like we don't have pensions. We mm-hmm. don't have any way. We are like not making any money at all. So we don't have any money to save for retirement. And so people like literally rely on housing and property to take care of every single aspect of their life because our country is so stupid privatized. It's like if we had a robust social safety net, people wouldn't rely on their private home so much and it would be easier to get out of this. You know, it's almost like everywhere you turn, it's like this dangerous cycle that is just like privileging a few and leaving out so many. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I, I've had to unlearn so many of the biases that you grow up with, just like growing up in America of, and like the, the myths that you internalize about home ownership. And I, I thought about that before. I was like, well, if I didn't, I, I would never even like think to desperately want to own a home if if I had a pension if I like I knew that my retirement were secure but we like right. I mean people are still fucking talking about privatizing social security like we <laughs> everything is a fight here and yeah uh I think a lot of this fear-mongering is effective because of the very real scarcity of Re- any resources. any resources um yeah I mean I don't know yeah it's scary because like everyone wants to own a home it would be great if that wasn't done at the like exploitation of others you know what I mean Mm -hmm. um and, and you know I don't really believe in consumer activism so I think if you can get one you should but there needs to be other ways to build and sustain families and wealth and stability yeah there have to be I mean, I know that there are. <laughs> yeah. Because other places have them. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, well, you know, as always, Sia, whenever I talk to you, I learn a lot and also am like, fuck, everything is bad. <laughs> yeah. But it's not just when I talk to you. It's when I, you know, just think about the state of, of housing writ large. Um, yeah. The question that Kate had asked, and I'm, I want to make sure, it said, what is the funding for, what does the funding for, quote unquote, lawyers mean that the Democrats are supporting? I don't know what that means, but. Yeah. So the Democrats just said that they support um, eviction protection regulations for, um, or the Democrats just said basically that that they support funding housing court attorneys for people facing eviction across the country. And in New York City, we have right to counsel for some renters, and it's been um, really tremendous. Uh, But we have rights. Like, tenants, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, like, tenants in New York City have rights. Um, Outside of New York City, tenants really have very weak rights. And so, like, I mean, imagine it. You're going to go to court. They'll be like, here's your court-assigned lawyer. The housing court judge is going to say... The, the landlord's going to say, you didn't pay rent for the last four months. You have a legal obligation to pay rent. Your lawyer's going to be like, true. And that person can be evicted. So, like, lawyers without rights is not enough. Yeah. The most you're going to be buying <laughs> someone is time. Yeah. And so I'm a big fan of right to counsel. I think that we definitely need right to counsel in housing court. But that needs to be paired with very strong tenant protections and deep organizing, which, which you know, the Democrats are not proposing. <laughs> so. Oh, God. Yeah. Well. I love when they do the absolute bare minimum that has almost no positive effect 
Yep, exactly. <laughs> and it's flashy, right? People are like, oh, yeah, lawyers. It's like what the New York Times said what the solution should be. Uh-uh. That's not true. <laughs> it reminds me of that, um, that uh, when everyone was talking about student loan forgiveness, Kamala Harris uh, proposed, like, <laughs> this very convoluted, like, student loan forgiveness for Pell Grant recipients if they have a business in an underprivileged community for three years. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what that feels like to me. Um, yeah. But yeah. So I, I guess, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, about the problems that ail, uh, that ail. And, and also I want, I want to point out this, this is not just something that is uh, unique to rental properties. This is, obviously like homeownership is so difficult and housing has become so expensive because of, again, a kind of profits. Yeah. And a kind of like scarcity by design where the only things, the only housing being built is luxury housing. And it's not just in places like New York. It's like, like I was talking about in the, you know, in the fifties, all of those like middle-class housing developments, no one's building those anymore. No one, like, all new construction that's being built are these fucking McMansions because they're trying to... Or glass towers in New York City. Yeah, Yeah, and they're trying to extract the most money that they can. And because of that, again, a lot of these apartments, these condos go vacant um, for very long periods of time. Um, And There's, like, a total, like, glut at the top of the market mm -hmm. and, like, a total crunch at the bottom of the market. And to me, that just tells you that, like, capitalism and, like, trickle-down economics is obviously not working. And, like, we could come up with something better, I'm sure. We could only think of something better. (laughs) If only. You know, we try so hard. We just can't. Um, No. And it's, like, I'm just so tired of... It's, like, everyone knows, even, like, Republicans... Even Ronald Reagan's, like, financial advisor came out and said that trickle-down economics didn't work after it was in place for, like, two years. And it's just (laughs) been this disease that has infected American politics for the last 40-plus years. Yeah, Um, it's super ideological. Yeah, and it's never been shown to work. It's been shown explicitly that it doesn't work and it makes the economy worse, but it makes the people who make our laws more money so they don't complain um so see we talked a lot about a lot of shit that's bad about housing and a lot of a lot of these problems if you want to be if you're if you're someone out there who like really wants to get involved in the housing movement uh what would you tell them to do so you can visit our website, housingjusticeforall.org, um, and you can sign up to get involved. We're actually, we're building a, um, a rapid response eviction defense network, um, and you can read about it on our website. Basically, what we're doing is we're asking our neighbors to sign up to like join regular calls with us, and they will get plugged in to, if you hear your neighbors being evicted, when and where to show up to support them. Um, but yeah, I think the best thing is to follow us on Follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, visit our website, housing, the number four, all NY, housing for all NY, or housingjusticeforall.org. Um, and you can get you can get plugged in with our work. Um, 
There's always there's always stuff that we're asking folks to do. Um, we're also supporting three bills before the state legislature right now, so you can also call your state representative. And if you visit our website, uh, the tool to call your state rep and ask them to support a true eviction moratorium for New York will show right up. Awesome. And uh, where can folks find you, Sia? I am on Twitter at Sia Weaver, C-E-A-W-E-A-V-E-R, um, and I tweet too much. And you can also find my email and my phone number on our Housing Justice for All website. Um, I'll say it. I'll say it here. You can never tweet too much. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm proof of that. And... <laughs> No, you can only ever tweet too much. Any tweeting is too much. And it's a website that should be burned to the ground for my own personal sanity only. Um, (laughs) But Sia, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this conversation. Uh, This has been this has been great. And I'll see you on our call in an hour. (laughs) See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.